Ready? Three, two, one. Welcome back to episode two of Artist Impressions. This week I'm joined by Ronnie Neal, who is a playwright, a stage manager and actually one of my childhood friends. Um, It's lovely to have you. Welcome Ronnie, how are you? Hello Laura, it's lovely to be here. I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? Good, yeah, I'm all right, considering everything that's going on. I'm I'm all right, and it's lovely to be speaking to you, because um, I've not spoken to you for ages, so this is really nice to have I a know, catch I up. I think the last time we actually saw each other was Fringe 2019, so yeah. the last Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, which was a lovely time. Yeah, and I, I saw the, the play that you teched, which was great. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, that was a lovely time. But yeah, not seen you since, since the world has Exploded. collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> Let's let's start by talking about playwriting and your play Mistrial because it's just had a research and development that was with the National Youth Theatre. Was that is that right? Yeah, with yeah. the National Youth Theatre. And so that's fresh in our minds. You also wrote a series of monologues called Indecent Acts, which was performed in our hometown, which shed light on untold queer love stories in Dorset. But we'll start with Mistrial. Can you outline for listeners the plot of the play and where that came from? Yeah, uh, so uh, Mistrial has actually been sort of in my head as an idea for a couple of years now, probably. Um, it was sort of something that I, I my partner, Chris, she's she, one of our one of the questions she asked me on like one of our, you know, in the first couple of months when we were dating was, um, was if you were artistic director of a theatre, what would be your inaugural season? Oh, what a and good she sort question. she gave me parameters. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, and she sort of gave me parameters of, of you have to do, you know, you have to do a musical revival and you have to do blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, and you have to do an adaption. Yeah. And I said, oh, well, I would adapt the trial yes. um, as the story of a trans woman in 2019. Yeah. And she was like, that's a good idea. Um, and so she's a playwright. And so I thought, well, you know, great, lovely. If a playwright thinks, if a real playwright thinks it's a good idea, then I can definitely do that. Yeah. Um, but it didn't actually start, it didn't actually exist until about six weeks right. ago. And then the first draft got written in like five days amazing um which was a bit mad yeah so the sort of plot of it it, it's it's using um the trial kafka's the trial as a jumping off point so for anyone who doesn't know the trial it is a story of a man called joseph k who one day wakes up and is arrested um and so it's sort of about the bureaucracy of the system the law and sort of everyday life for Kay and it's sort of about him you know giving up his what is it giving up his spirit to the safety of mediocrity is the sort of quote the kind of tagline Mm. um and so I thought so I'm non-binary for disclaimer and I have sort of been looking at medically transitioning recently 
and the NHS gender identity system in the UK um, is an absolute shambles. Mm -hmm. The patients are currently being treated who were referred originally in 2016 and 2017. So currently as it stands, if you were referred today, you would get your first appointment in 13 years time. So if that doesn't write itself, Mm -hmm. then I Mm -hmm. thought, what does? Yeah. Um, So the story of mistrial is about a transgender woman uh, called Kay and she uh, gets her phone gets a phone call for her first appointment through uh, for an NHS gender identity clinic Um, and it's sort of going through her medical transition and going through her journey and she's sort of got to battle the system which sort of sets her up to fail right Um, and that is what it's about so you've got the one central character of Kay and then you've got three other actors who take on these different roles and I really I love the sort of the chaos that it brings which means you've got Kay in the middle and then all these people sort of almost like rushing around I mean maybe that's because I read it quite quickly but there was this real sense of of (laughs) chaos Um, and yeah I was wondering these three actors is was that an artistic decision or sort of a practical decision um, or like a metaphorical decision yeah can you talk about the three the three actors who like rush around the central character yeah um yeah, so the smart answer would be that, you know, I want to reflect formally, um, you know, this world in which none of the characters sort of acknowledge the problems yeah. of the system that they are in and none of them acknowledge that they're playing, you know, multiple roles within the sort of oppression of this central character. Um And I would love to be able to tell you that that is the true answer of how that came about. Um, But actually, I ended it first in when I first wrote it, I ended it um, into a playwriting prize, which uh, one of the sort of requirements was that it was for a company of six actors or less. So I sort of went, well, four. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it does work, though. It really does create a sense of chaos. I think it does. And the way that Kay has to repeat things to one one person and then this actor becomes someone else and ha- she has to repeat all these same things again and you, you really get that, that sense of her frustration. The, um, the moments of violence where you're just in this normal doctor's room and then suddenly there's this moment of violence and it's, it's so cathartic. Hello from the edit. I'm just adding something that I missed when I was speaking to Ronnie before. This moment of violence co- comes from Kay's imagination as she imagines how she would get her frustrations out after having been misgendered by this woman so many times so yeah it's um it's imagined I should have said that at the time um yeah can you talk about that yeah so um so I I sort of struggled back and forth with that moment because the thing is with um so with TERFs uh trans exclusionary radical feminists they are basically people who you know who do not think that trans women are women who do not think that trans men are men and a sort of wanting to invalidate every single trans person on the planet which is obviously not ideal with that moment i sort of went really back and forth for a while because i sort of thought oh you know if the turfs see this then they're gonna go oh you know this is what trans women are like and this is what's constantly going on in their heads and blah 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 but actually you know for people who are being misgendered you know this whole Kay's whole sort of thing about this this system that she's going through is that this it's supposed to be helping her it is set up to help her and yet a lot of the stuff in the play is not particularly exaggerated (laughs) it's not particularly you know it is a a reality for a lot of trans people and so I think possibly in future versions of the piece there'll be a lot more of those sort of insights into what Kay into what is actually going on on inside Kay's head because it's quite interesting you know as trans people we're sort of expected to be palatable a lot of the time sort of expected to Mm. be uh, very safer work versions 
versions of ourselves and very watered down pastel appropriate versions of Mm. ourselves and actually you know when you do want to punch someone in the face because it's the fifth time they've misgendered you and it's the fifth time you've corrected them for misgendering you then like yeah actually that's true like (laughs) and that's not a fault of the trans person that's a fault of the the person who's misgendering them in the first place so so it was something that um but yeah, I struggled with, I, I, I didn't know whether to put it in or not. But then actually at this R&D, this, so the R&D was in a, a group of entirely trans people. So it was, um, mm. had a trans director and trans actors. You know, one of the actors said it was the first all entirely trans room that she'd been in, which was lovely to hear. And one of the guys sort of said, you know, at the end of the first time reading it, he said, I love that moment and I want to see more of it. So, you know, maybe there'll be sort of future versions of the play, which which have more of that sort of moment of leaping inside of Kay's head. Yeah. And then sort of violently pulling her out of it again. No, I loved it. And I thought you brought it in at just the right moment because you'd been with Kay as she has to keep reminding people what her name is and what her pronouns are and whatever all the way through. And you save that violence for when you're like really annoyed for her and you you don't bring it in until you're really like, God, this is so annoying. (laughs) And it is so cathartic, I think, for... Uh, you know, as I was reading it and I, I was sort of picturing it on stage and I thought, what what a brilliant shift from this clinical room. So no, I thought I thought you brought it in at just the right just the right moment for oh, the, the for the catharsis. Um let's go back to talking about the R and D. What was it like to like have the, the word spoken for the first time and what what sort of came out of it that really interested you? Yeah, oh it was so scary. It was so scary. Um <laughs> I yeah so I that play had never been um, read out loud by a team of actors before um, so that was terrifying yeah I've never in the monologue um, in the sort of series of monologues uh, in decent acts that I did last year that was that was queer and trans stories but that was sort of someone had come to me and said will you write these things so I could go yeah 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 totally yeah whereas I think that's very different to putting something out into the world that you have quite strong feelings about but also you're slightly awkward talking about as well. It was amazing. It was wonderful. It was useful. Um, And I think, you know, having an entirely trans team of actors reading it made the difference because it meant that I wasn't having to, you know, do a trans 101, essentially, because everybody already knew the terms. Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to say, like, I got a lot of compliments, but it was really nice to sort of hear some positive feedback about it um um yeah one um one of the so the actress who played who read k um tabby lamb mm. she she called it authentically trans which i i liked because nice. i think that holds a lot of a lot of meaning to it in it's interesting it's it's kind of talking about you know things that we already know things that you know mm. the trans community already knows but things that the cis community absolutely does not things that we you know if you went up to anyone else and said oh yeah you know I've been referred onto this service but I'm not going to get seen for 13 years that they would go they'd be outraged you know they'd be yeah. absolutely yeah. outraged but with you know so using Kafka as sort of a, a wheelhouse for that and I, I wouldn't call it an adaption at all I would call it a sort of taking the concept and running with it rather than anything else but it was it was great. It was brilliant to to sort of hear it out loud. It was brilliant to um, we had a sharing at the end of the second day. We only had about six hours in total to R and D it completely. But um, it was amazing to see you know people from NYT there who supported me from sort of day one of my 
Korea um, people who I'd reached out to and said, I don't know how to get my work on, but I've got it on. Would you like to come and see it? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And just a mixture of friendly faces. And that was really nice. It was it was a lovely, lovely experience. And it's been really useful to, as well as that, sort of use it as sensitivity reading. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all very well and good if this play reads for me but if it doesn't read for other people then I've, I've got to change it and I've got to make it you know make it work for the people who it's written for essentially yeah, yeah. um and so and you didn't direct it in that reading you watched someone else direct it I did which must yeah. have been strange yeah it was it was it's very interesting it's always really interesting sort of hearing your own work dissected I guess because I feel like I yeah always do it and I'm constantly analysing and I think that sort of goes back to being an A-level student and having to pull apart work at the seams and then you know hearing people do that for your own words and then hearing that and going oh yeah no like that does sound good that does sound like you're making the words that I wrote do them do what I want them to do yeah it's it's really weird but it's great yeah and probably quite satisfying did the the R&D sort of clarify things for you about like where you want to take the play next do you do you I suppose it's it's hard to know at the moment in in lockdown but will we ever be able to see see um Miss Trial on the stage yeah I hope so um I don't think it would work as a digital play at all I am trying to currently write something specifically for a digital format because I think that's Mm. interesting but I think this one should be in a physical space. I would love to be able to be like, yes, there are totally plans in the work, but there are, you know, there are absolutely no plans in the works. Um, But I think I'm going to keep pushing it as like, I believe in this play. I think this story should be told. And this is why you should put it on. I think it's brilliant because it's such an important story to tell. And you've done it in such an interesting form that I think it it should be and will be programmed by someone. We hope so. Let's talk just a little bit about your um, your writing process. You said you wrote it in six six days, which is so quick. Yeah. Um, so I was chatting with my partner, Chris, about it. Uh, yeah, I was talking to her. I was sort of explaining ideas and nothing was really clicking. And then, and then I can't remember what it was, but we just got into a like, this is it and this is amazing and this is like the idea and yeah. this is how it should work. Um, and she's been incredible. She's been absolutely incredible throughout the process. She was the first one I, you know, the first one I gave it to from, from draft one. Yeah. Um, she, yeah, and so she's, you know, obviously a professional writer. So she's been, you know, incredible and brilliant for feedback. But yeah, so it got, I literally, it, I think it was like on the Thursday that we had the chat. And then on Friday, I started writing. And then by Tuesday, I'd finished it. So it was mad. But the, that was the thing about this particular story. It kind of wrote itself because I sort of knew where I, yeah. you know, I knew what the ending was already. I knew what the beginning was already. And I knew the journey that she had to go in order to, because not only, you know, is the trial there. And I actually didn't sort of come back to the trial as much as I thought I would. I, I haven't particularly mm. used the text much but the the process of going through a gender identity clinic is already there. And so mm. I was like, fantastic, that's my structure, already done. Yeah. So I didn't, yeah. I feel like I didn't particularly have to work as hard as I should have to write this play. <laughs> but then obviously the, the work came back from, you know, going back and fine toothing it. And yeah, so I think we're on about draft 4.3 at the moment. Yeah, so this next version of the script will be what has come out of the R&D. Yeah. Um, can we talk a bit about um, Indecent Acts, the monologues you wrote? When was that? A year, two years ago? 
It was just over a year ago. Um, yeah, which is completely mad. Um, I never yeah. actually saw it in person. I was on tour, um, so I never actually got to see it. And it was only performed once, which was so sad. I wanted to come back, but it was only on for one night. So neither yeah. of us saw it. No. <laughs> yeah, so it was for a museum called Shire Hall uh, in Dorchester. Mm-hmm. And um, my friend Harriet at the time was in charge of events i want to say or uh exhibitions mm. um and yeah. they were um as part of the british museum's love desire identity tour um they were receiving it it was a um a touring exhibition and she was sort of doing you know screenings of pride and a little party and things mm. like that and she said i you know i was talking about chris um and she said i you know i wish we had enough money to commission her and mm. I said, well, you don't, but you do have enough money <laughs> to commission me. <laughs> that was very clever of you. Um, so it wasn't actually, you know, it wasn't, I think, I, th- I don't think it was officially a commission, but I did write it for them for the Love, Desire, Identity tour. And it was directed by our very good friend, the one and only Emily Wilkinson. Oh, it was, of course. She was brilliant. Again, that was a, f- a really bizarre moment of looking at Emily and going, I've heard you analyse, you know, check off like this yeah and now you're yeah my work it was so weird but yeah so that was that was queer dorset figures and sort of a series of monologues um here we go shire hall website yes you wrote about uh william john barnes radcliffe hall yes valentine ackland and sylvia townsend warner among others uh yeah there was another william we only had about a page of information on um, cause he was a, um, asylum patient who had been taken in for, uh, for cross-dressing essentially. And then, yes, yeah, so William John Banks, uh, William John Banks is a fantastic figure. I mean, obviously, you know, hugely colonialist, um, the mm. Egyptians hate him because he stole loads of things from their land, but his house, I would highly recommend it. The Banks family, they tried to strike him from all of their family records because he was gay and quite scandalously gay as well. Like he wasn't quite about it. He ran away to, I think to France because he was going to be arrested and hung, but he actually came back. There are sort of high suspicions that he actually snuck back um, because of some sort of weird law that meant you like you couldn't be arrested on sunday or something like that and so he like came (laughs) back on the saturday night went to go and see his house went back to france and then wrote letters to his brother like i can't believe you've moved the chest to this corner of the room i specifically said it should be in the other place (laughs) so like not even being subtle about the fact that you'd like illegally come back to england oh yeah and you're like this the drax family who are the uh yeah richard drax who is the Tory MP, sadly. Yes, and major slave-owning family. Yeah, major slave-owning family. Um, The Drax family and the Banks family have a feud, so they actually always have cannons pointing towards each other's estates. No way! (laughs) Yeah. Wow, Um, that's wild. Which is great, which I like at, like, any moment there could be, like, a civil war in Dorset. God. Wow, that is quite funny, actually. (laughs) I quite like that. I thought you would. Did sort of writing those monologues... Have you written plays between the two? No, no, I haven't. Because you're a stage manager as well, aren't you? So you're busy managing stages in between. I wrote the monologues during Fringe, which was just 
the most intense oh my god time i would like do two shows a day and then go to like a pub garden and just like type and type and type and listen to like comedy coming from another venue wow um so yeah so then i went on a uk national tour which was quite um intense um so we didn't Mm -hmm. actually have that much sort of free external time so lockdown really was the sort of you know obviously i absolutely loathe it with all of my heart but it is a necessity and i feel like this was a really good thing you know writing this play finishing this play was a really great thing for me to do because I have started so many plays and I just have not finished them yeah and I think you know that's fine maybe those plays don't need to exist yet but this one was sort of really nice because it not only have I written it not only is it something that I love and I'm like super proud of not only is it has it been well received so far but like also I have finished it and that proves that, you know, it wasn't, yeah, yeah it, it wasn't just like a one-off fluke. I can actually, I have actually finished this play. There are some questions that I ask everyone I interview. So let's move on to those. The first one is, um, what impression would you like your art to make on the world? Uh, so I was trying to practice this while I was doing washing up because I don't <laughs> actually, I don't actually know. This is such a hard question. I think, so I was was trying to sort of sort through my thoughts. I think for me, there is no other art form that has had such an incredibly powerful effect on me than Mm theatre. No other art form has moved me in the same way, has made me think in the same way, has made me cry, laugh, Mm. you know, feel so furious in the same way. So if I can have that effect on other people, that is what I would like to do. And I guess like, let people know that it's like okay to be do you know what i mean i know this is going to be such a stock answer but like humans are messy flawed very very multifaceted individuals but we're also quite brilliant in some ways and a lot of those things can exist at the same time i'm sort of doing a lot of like holding two things that oppose each other in in the same weight at the same time if that makes any sense and and i think you can do that in because theater is you've got all the audience in the room with all the actors you can play with the fact that you're all human all experiencing the same thing at the same time in a in a way that you you can't in sort of film or something because it's yeah it's about that like a, a language it's, it's a shared language between the audience and the actors and and that's why theatre is such a form that speaks to me so hugely is because there I have just not found anything else like it that affects me in the same way so if I can do that for like one other person that's my goal <laughs> Yeah, that's a great answer. Then can you tell me about an artist that has made an impression on you and on your work? Yes. So I've got a list here. This is where my notes have come in. So brilliant. We have the one and only Chris Bush, the love of my life. Of course, of course. So particularly her two of her plays, Faustus That Damned Woman and The Assassination of Katie Hopkins. I love her work. I have not seen all of it, but I love it. I think she is a writer who can really adapt herself to anything that she wants to, which is quite a skill to have. Mm-hmm. So first of all, The Assassination of Katie Hopkins. Um, it was on at Theatre Cluid and it's a verbatim, it's a faux verbatim musical. So she like wrote verbatim stuff and Amazing. then turned it into a musical. And it's just one of the most impressive things I've ever seen on stage or like anyone do. And then Faustus was a show of hers that really made me think and really made me consider, you know, Mm. morals, morality, um, the role of women on stage and 
the dynamics yeah. of who you who your characters are and how they work with each other. Yeah, so Chris and then a company that we both have worked with before, Angel Exit. From Dorset. So they're a Dorset... I say Dorset-based... Yeah, they're based in Paul, aren't they? I think so, yeah. They definitely do a lot of lighthouse work. They're a, yeah, so they're, they're uh, two women, Townsend and Lynn, who are fantastic. They're so nice. They're so kind. They do really brilliant rural work. And I think rural work is amazing i love it it was my first introduction to sort of professional theater and same yeah i will always go back to it um particularly their play the drive i really liked because it was it was just the two of them and it sort of jumped back and forwards in time in a way that i liked um i think it was a really clever piece of staging um these projection in in a really nice way um so i'd probably say this person is the first on the list um, in terms of influences, a brilliant, fantastic playwright and someone who I'm proud to call a friend because I've sort of like edging my way into friendship, which is great, called Eve Lee, um, who I first saw her play Midnight Movie at the Royal Court and it was incredible. It was, you know, that feeling when you watch a play and it is exactly the thing that you need to see in that exact moment? Yeah. Yeah. It was that. But also, it was fucking brilliant. Amazing. It was written brilliantly. She's a fantastic writer. She's an ace person. And it was just a really good sort of formally messing up of what theatre can do and should do. And it was also about the internet, which I love. Interesting, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rose Lewinstein as well, who had a play on at the Orange Tree called Cougar. It was fantastic to see in person because it was so quick paced. It had a total, I think, of 87 scenes in it. So it was about relationships, but also about the environment and the climate crisis. But in a very, very clever, brilliant way, I think a lot of climate crisis pieces can be a little bit like preachy and a little bit like, and if you don't change the world, this is what's going to happen. So you better go out there and recycle. And hers was actually, um, one of the characters was sort of a woman who went out and spoke to businesses about Mm. what they could do to manage the climate crisis. And so it put the focus on like, I am a single human being trying to change huge organisations, which is, you know, obviously the reality of like what it is. And then for my one man on the list, I am going to say Martin Crimp. I really like his work. I think people try to capture the middle class in a way that will draw people to the theatre. But I think he really does it well. I think his plays, often you watch his plays but you and you're still engaged, but you hate all of the characters <laughs> by the end of it. I think it's a really tricky thing to do whilst also keeping your audience like with you and engaged and not just clicking out because you hate people. I first worked on one of his plays dealing with Claire back in 2018 and then I saw when we've sufficiently tortured each other at the Mm. National Theatre, the incredible Kate Blanchett. It was kind of a conversation over like however long it was, Mm. hour and 20 which I think is why people didn't particularly click with it but as someone who loves conversations particularly about gender about gender expression, about gender dynamics and about about relationship I, I, you know, I vibed with it so hard. Does she wear a wedding dress in that? Because I did a couple of weeks in the um, the National Theatre Arc archive and I was sorting out costume bibles and I think I did the costume bible for that show so I didn't see it but I was working with this costume bible trying to work out what the play could be and I I remember seeing the drawings of the the wedding dress yes so now I need to read it yeah the costumes I loved the costumes on that show they were both you know both the lead the lead man and woman they swapped costumes back and forth throughout the whole show it was really lovely, um, yeah, display mad, mad exploration of gender and what it means 
when you're speaking in a certain voice, wearing a certain costume, portraying a certain role in your relationship. And it was it was good. I did like it. I think it could have obviously could have benefited with having more trans and non conforming gender non conforming mm. people on the on the show if it was about that. But but it was good. It was nice. Another question I sent you, a, a question that I ask everyone, is um what is one piece of art that you think um, you, you, that you would like everyone in the world to have seen and yeah by everyone it doesn't have to be like every single person but you think the world would be a better place if everyone had encountered that piece of art oh that's huge oh god <laughs> I, I definitely should have had a better answer for this my play come and see my play <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah I think, I think definitely um yeah uh trans people if you see my play you'll know that you are not alone in this you will know that you are totally in the right to be frustrated by this system which has been set up to help us but at the moment is only hindering us. Cis people, you will understand what we have to go through in order to live our damn lives. You will understand that 18 weeks is actually quite a short amount of time to wait for an appointment Um, and that 13 years is a really fucking long time. Um, So come and see whenever it's on. Come and see my play. That's the answer I'm going to give. Yeah. No, I think that's a perfect answer. Because yeah, as as a cis woman reading it, I was thinking, God, this is awful. And this must be true. This must be what people have to experience every day. And I think, yeah, it's particularly just having to sort of read it over and over again. And you imagine sort of having to hear that over and over again every day. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think I think a big power thing for Kay is, is in Mistral that, that nobody says her name apart from her. And I wanted, yeah. you know, I was very, very deliberate about that. And, you know, she says her name over and over and over and over again. She is the mm. only one being calling herself she, calling herself a woman, calling herself Kay. And so it does become a, a power thing. You know, there's a moment at the end of Act One where she sort of has a monologue and she starts it off with, you know, my name is Kay. My name has been Kay, you know, essentially since, she, mm. you know, before she was born, before she was assigned a gender, her name was always Kay. But at the end of the day, if nobody is calling you your own name, you know, how much power can it have? I think that fluctuates within the play. I think it goes up and down. I think at moments, at some moments, it's an incredibly powerful thing for her to say, actually, you know, no. My name is Kay. Mm. And at some moments it just falls on deaf ears and it doesn't make a difference to her or anyone in the room with her. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you you um, the way you interweave monologues into the play. Like, like with the violence, it's, it's another sort of... You, you get to see inside her mind. Um, and yeah, I think that's lovely. And also it gets you away from the chaos of these millions of characters. You know, obviously I, I want to push this as much as possible, but I think there should be a moment for everybody where you do reach the end of the play and you go, actually, you know, what do I know about this woman apart from the fact that she's transgender? Mm. And like, nothing. That is deliberate because for a gender identity clinic, that is all you are. Even when you're talking about your personal history, your childhood history, your me- mental health history, your medical history, your sexual mm. history, it is all relating back to your gender. And that is what they want to yeah. hear. And that is what they need to hear because, you know, that's what they're diagnosing you as but when it takes such a fucking long time you know it's why yeah. sometimes all trans people talk about is their gender is because it's all they can think about it's because because yeah. it's all they're forced to think about yeah and and all people ask them about or all people will refer to them as or, or whatever yeah and not even you know not even in the medical community but also in you know you know twitter fucking twitter and the daily mail and the sun and all those shitty you know even the guardian now is really turfy and everything is sold for shock factor and oh my god sex change you know whereas actually 
the reality is that these are people with lives and personalities but yeah. when you're reduced down to your gender identity you can't really be anything else other than your gender identity um i have to ask you about the ending the the board suddenly appear and start condemning the process yeah would you want to talk about the ending the ending a, pro, a step that is seen and has been in the media quite a lot recently is um, uh, a step that's seen quite often as the sort of quote unquote end of someone's you know, medical and legal transition is your gender recognition certificate. So that means that when you get married, you mm. can be referred to as your your correct gender. When you have children, you will be on their birth certificate as the correct you know parental mm. role and also your birth certificate. So those are the sort of things that it checks off. As far as I know, I haven't applied for one and I, I'm not a complete expert on GRCs. Mm-hmm. So that's the final step in Kay's transition and it is a board meeting you do have to apply to a panel it's not Mm. in person but you do have to apply to it um and you have to show proof that you've been living as your gender for the last two years and that you've taken you know whatever intervention that you need you need a letter from a doctor you need a letter from a psychotherapist you know when actually all that everyone else has to do is be born so the board you know obviously in the trial there is Kay going through the trial and he never actually meets the judge in Kafka's trial Kay never meets, you know, the trustees who are then the next sort of step in the process of who she can appeal to to get her gender recognition uh, certificate. But I did sort of want this judgment process. And in, and in Kafka's trial, it is the priest. And I sort of wanted, I sort of had this thing of Kay being, you know, worn down and worn down and worn down over this whole process. And then finally sort of meeting this huge imposing figure who is huge and imposing anyway. But since she's so sort of had the life sucked out of her by this process. Yeah, so there's a stage direction at the beginning of the board scene, which is something like they fill the room and, you know, the auditorium and any space that Kay is not currently standing in is taken over by the board. I want to see that. Like, (laughs) I want to see that. I love I love how your stage directions definitely need some thought about how you could possibly I remember doing a, a, a playwriting course and the tutor saying just write the stage directions the director will have to deal with it and I really thought gosh how will you fill the space with the board but I think that's brilliant of you to just be like this is this is what's going to happen and you can figure <laughs> it out as a stage manager obviously I have been on the receiving end of those stage directions and yeah one of the hardest challenges I've had was like was a sci-fi show we had this needle which had to like inject glowing liquid into one of the characters arms obviously we did it because we're stage managers and we can make anything happen but (laughs) I feel like the fun comes in like balancing the line between impossible and like entirely doable I don't ever want someone to look at a stage direction and go, no, there is absolutely no way in which this could happen. I'd like them to think about it for ages and ages and ages and like, actually, we can come up with an incredibly clever solution to this. So the board fills every bit of space around Kay and then delivers these judgments almost. The thing is, so with appointments at this version of the GRC, in real life, you get your appointment letter about six weeks before your appointment. But with Kay, they've sort of said, you know, you will receive your notification of your appointment within 12 months of when it's actually supposed to happen. And so she turns up for her her board meeting to get approved for her gender recognition certificate. And it, it was seven months ago. So she has actually had a meeting, but it was seven months ago and she didn't show. 
and she has now missed the window of opportunity to appeal, which means that she has to start the entire process over again. And so she's sort of forced out of this room. And I think it gets a little bit meta at the end, making the play finish while she's still she's still happening. Can I talk about the gatekeeper story? Is that... I was about to ask you about the weaving in of the gatekeeper. So yeah, please talk about that. So in the original trial, there is the story of the doorkeeper, which is you are standing in front of the door and in front of the door is a doorkeeper. You ask the doorkeeper if you can be let in and he says that it is a possibility, but not right now. So you sit there and you wait for your whole life and you ask the doorkeeper, you know, what's behind the door? And he says, oh, another door with another doorkeeper. And, you know, each doorkeeper is more powerful than the last. So I wouldn't go in if I were you sort of thing. And then you, you use your final, you know, your, your final remains of strength to ask a question, which is how, how have I been here all these years? And no one else has tried to pass through the, through the door. And the doorkeeper says, this door was only ever meant for you. And I, now I'm going to shut it. So there's so much to, to untangle within that story. And there is a huge thing in the transgender community about gatekeeping. And specifically in the LGBT, I'm going to open it up to like LGBTQ plus community as well, because, you know, this whole thing about who is allowed in the LGBTQ plus community, but particularly in terms of medical transition, people are worried that there is going to be some gatekeeping involved, which is turn, people turning around to them and saying, you know, no, you're not trans enough. You're not enough. You're not, you know, you're not dysphoric enough. You're not, you're not presenting in your assigned gender. You know, that the thing, the moment in the play where Kay is wearing Kay comes in for her first appointment and is sort of penalized for wearing jeans like that does happen Kay's diagnosis and a lot of her sort of initial assessments are taken you know word for word from my assessment which is mad so so again the story of the gatekeeper kind of wrote itself because there is a huge I just love it so much this huge parallel of you know the door is always open but you cannot be let in and at the very end I'm going to shut the door um, it speaks hugely of the gender identity system at the moment because actually, you know, it's all very well and good people saying the resources are there, but actually, if you are having to wait 13 years for your transition, the, the resources are not there. I feel like the play, a lot of the times, trans plays particularly have to do with sort of this is trans 101 for a cis audience, and I think that this play in a way does that, but hopefully not in a sort of I'm explaining things because the audience needs to know. It's just how the world is and how, you know, surrounding, you know, dead naming and misgendering. That's not, you know, those are two terms that are never explained because Kay knows what they are and why, why, you know, why would she ever have to explain them? I think it's really nice that her experience is centred and anyone in the audience, you just, you just learn as you go or you know because it is your experience. And I think that's... The plan is to get all the, like middle-aged cis white audience in with kafka it's a wheelhouse kafka is my trojan horse um another question that i ask everyone is um can you tell me about a piece of art or um any any sort of art that you've you've been enjoying recently that you'd you'd recommend yeah so um i'm actually going to talk about some video games as well in this as well as a piece of theater um, yeah, so yeah, so leading the whole thing is um, a musical called Shift Alt Right by Himley Jaden, which was produced and directed by a guy called Adam Lenson. So Adam is um, a pioneer of new musical theatre, and Shift Alt Right was uh, was created for digital consumption. Um, it was sort of it was, a, it was an hour long musical about a a guy who finds comfort in um, online gaming. 
and how that world sort of sucked him into alt-right culture. So it's sort of based around Gamergate in 2014 and set in 2014, sort of around the rise of misogyny and sexism in video game culture. And it was brilliant. It was so good. It was so good because it had been designed for online. It it had been designed to see online. The sort of setup was that there was, um, you know, there was this guy sat at his desk. We had three camera angles on him, one from the side, one from his webcam and one from the top down. We could see his screen. We could see, um, you know, sometimes it cut to his screen. And so and it was brilliant. It was so good. It was, um, you know, and I would I would have loved to personally see more of it because I think it would have worked um, you know, incredibly in a sort of full length piece, there would have been like a much more room for sort of nuance and exploration and sort of digging into that culture and what, how, you know, how long these, these alt-right people um, spend on sort of recruitment and, and twisting everything in your life to draw in these quite vulnerable people. So that was amazing. It was so good. So this new, um, this new project that I'm currently trying to work on, trying to conceive it, is going to be a, it's going to be a piece for digital consumption, and it's going to be a, um, hopefully a musical, potentially just a play. I don't know. I've never written a musical before. I am currently in the process of writing one with my brother, which is very exciting. Yeah, your brother's a musician, so that's a, a perfect yes. marriage of your your two <laughs> yeah. skills. Um, Alfie Neal, go and listen to um, his songs. He's great. Yeah, uh, he's got a new song that was out on Radio Two the other day called cigars um so we're trying to write musical ambitious i want to make a video game and then construct a show around that video game so that the narrative of the piece revolves around the narrative the narrative of the game which involves me making a video game which is not something that i've done before and it's something that i'm currently trying to do but i'm really interested in how these two mediums are currently interacting with each other uh, a theatre maker i'm gonna say theatre yes playwright uh playwright celine song um has recently streamed on twitch um her sims playthrough of her trying to recreate the seagull which i haven't watched all the way through yet i'm only on act one um, but is just hilarious. I watched a Q&A with her about gamers in theatre and she sort of said like, this could be terrible, but also it could be amazing. And there's no way to know. And so because it's live performance art, you know, she live Twitch streamed it, the whole thing. Um, so I'm really, really interested in, you know, in how these two, these two worlds that have never really collided before are now kind of coming together. Um, so I'm making my partner play Undertale because it has one of the best soundtracks of a um, of a video game. And also, I think, one of the most versatile narratives. I think it's quite theatrical. Similarly, um, Portal and Portal 2, I think those two games just changed the video game landscape. Um, and I think GLaDOS is one of the best villains that has ever been written. And uh, a game called Firewatch, which I played a couple of years ago. And again, the narrative is just beautiful. There's a really lovely thing about gamers in that they sort of put themselves in the position of of not what would this character do, but what would I do? And that's quite an interesting thing to consider when you're considering your audience as well. You know, if you are, if you manage to get your audience into like a what would I do, you know, not what would I do, but what am I going to do in this situation that I'm currently in? I think that's brilliant. I think that's magical. And I think that's something that theatre hasn't, hasn't managed to capture yet. I think particularly at the moment with people trying to work out how to put theatre online and, and, you know, it's it's sort of working, but things that are meant to be live, it's quite hard 
to put them online but something that like a game that's that's meant to be online you're meant to sort of share that narrative through your screen that makes so much sense to turn that into a theater experience because because that, that's how it's meant to be and so you can just build on that um i think that's that's such a great idea also it can still be live which is so important well exactly so that was why shift alt right worked so well because it was live it was live theater but it was you know live theater with four different actors in four different households um three computers a um you know three behind the scenes computers um a producer who was queuing yeah. the video and a sound mixer and they were all you know they were all socially yeah. distanced so it was all safe i watched a technical q a about it and they were saying you know this would be bloody impossible to do on stage we'd have to build a house like we'd have to build multiple houses on one stage and one of them we'd only use in the last five minutes of the performance like what would be the point but actually it works perfectly online and so if if something is made for yeah if something is made for that then i'd love to i'd love to be able to like tap that tap that resource rather than like tap that i'm i'm excited for this musical whenever it happens A, a a neil siblings collaboration i hope it'll exist um before I before I bring the interview to a close, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything you wished I'd asked you? Anything like that? Um, I don't think so. Um, thank you for having me on. It's been a delight. Thank you for being here. I've 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 loved catching up with you and and hearing all these things. Thank you for being on Artist Impressions. I'll make sure that everything you've recommended will be in the show notes. Thank you so Lovely much, Ronnie. Lovely to speak to you. Bye bye.